This is Brain Matters, the podcast where we explore the brain with the scientists who study it. Here's today's host, Anthony Lacanina. Today's episode is sponsored by Audible.com. For a free audiobook of your choice, head on over to audiblepodcast.com slash brainmatters. Thanks, Audible, for supporting our show. Hey everyone, you're listening to Brain Matters. I'm Anthony Lacanina. And I'm Matt Davis. Hey Matt, how you doing, man? You feeling good? Yeah, I'm doing good, especially now that I've, I see your new frames. They're pretty awesome. Oh, thank you. I'm wearing uh, the people out there you you can't see, but I just got some new glasses and I'm feeling like a, I got a fresh perspective on the world now. Yeah, they look great. And so great. In fact, it'd be super awesome to have that company as an advertiser because I know they advertise on other podcasts. Yeah, the, the, I'm wearing a particular frame of, of glasses. They that... send you a free trial, five <laughs> pairs, but we we won't say the name. We will not say the name. It rhymes with snarby darker. <laughs> but yeah, these new glasses, you know, it's like the people out there need to see them. And what's a better way to see them than to be on the radio or on a podcast? We are on the podcast. <laughs> oh yeah, today. we already have that. We first. already have a podcast. Oh yeah, okay. I was going to say, you know what the kids are listening to nowadays? The radio. It's kind of a vintage thing, you know. Vinyls are getting more popular, and now people are listening to radios once again. Oh, really? I mean, podcasts are still the coolest thing. We all can agree on that. that absolutely. They're still, we're still reaching peak, but radio. We're not at peak podcast yet. Peak podcast, we're not there yet, but. But, but retro radio. Retro. Uh-huh. It's really cool. People love the radio. Um, it's getting popular. Why do you bring up the radio? I'm bringing up the radio because Brain Matters fans out there. Do you ever? Do you get enough of us? Probably not. I sure don't. And I live with myself all the time. <laughs> Still not enough. In this show, we like to interview guests. But have you ever been like, I would kind of like to learn about Anthony, Matt, and Lauren. Yeah. Who's Lauren, by the way? <laughs> Who is Lauren? Actually, yeah, you guys don't even know about her. <laughs> well, if you want to know about her, she's our lovely and talented producer. And uh, we're all going to be on the radio next week. That's right. Where are we going to be on again, Matt? Uh, KVRX. It's a radio station in Austin, Texas. Yeah. And uh, you can go to kvrx.org. And it's next Monday, July 13th at uh, 7 to 8 p.m., I believe. Yeah. What's the name of the show, too? I think it's called They Blinded Me With Science. Listeners, Check it out, kvrx.org, 7 to 8. I don't know if you will be able to stream it after that, but you can definitely stream it from your computer at home. So yeah, listen to us. We're going to be talking about this podcast, so you'll kind of get to hear a behind the scenes with us. Awesome. Well, I'm looking forward to that. I know, me too, man. I'm, I'm excited. I can't wait. This will be our my first time on the airwaves that don't involve digital computers. All right, man. So why are we here today? What are we talking? Who did you talk to? What are we talking about? Uh, Give me the deets. Today's episode, I spoke to a professor named Yael Niv, and she is an assistant professor at Princeton University. Yeah. So what kinds of topics does she address in her research? 
Her major topic is trying to understand learning and memory, how we humans and how animals in general are able to sort of acquire memories and adapt their behavior so that they can perform better in tasks. So the kinds of things she wants to figure out are what are some of the rules that we use to gain information and learn about a unique task. So like, for example, Matt, if you were trying to learn a new game, what are some of the things you would start experimenting with? Uh, yeah. So like if I was out on a field and somebody was tossing a ball discs I've never at seen you. before Suddenly or a bunch discs of, or something. You're in a field, you have a bunch of balls and you have a ba- bunch of baskets lying around. Okay. Uh, and I can't talk to anybody. You have no idea like, what to do. Hey bro, can you tell me the rules of this game? And sometimes you're going to do some tasks and you might get rewarded with, I don't know, it's like a fish or some kind of, Ooh, okay. you might get a nice fish sandwich. Or you might get something maybe negative. They might uh, throw the ball at your face. (laughs) This game sounds terrible. It's called fish sandwich or ball in the face. Really (laughs) on the nose. I should have just been told the title and I think I could have figured out how to play. But what you're saying is you you have an environment with some unknown stimuli and whatnot. And you know there's some rules, and you want to try to figure out those rules to obtain some sort of goal. Yeah, how would you? So yeah, what would you? Start I would doing? just start trying random things, I suppose. Like I'd pick up a ball, throw it in one location, throw it in another location, or throw it at somebody else, see if they catch it. Sure. You know, your first step is just you know try things out, right? Just yeah. experiment, and then you're gonna like see whether or not something good or bad happened, right? Exactly. If I like the outcome, I feel like I will do that thing more. Exactly. Yeah. That summarizes a lot of just how learning happens. It's all about usually maximizing benefits and minimizing uh, costs or something negative happening. So a lot of our life is devoted to that fundamental goal. And so what Dr. Niv has been doing to represent that kind of learning is turn a complex behavior into a set of variables. And you can almost write out an equation to behavior. She does something that a lot of people call modeling. So she's going to create a equation or some sort of algorithm that is going to involve the different variables that she believes are involved in the task, such as maybe a variable that gauges how rewarding a certain positive outcome would be or how negative something would be. Another variable would be what you thought about the experience beforehand. So some sort of component that gets carried over from task to task. If this task or environment's familiar, then maybe you already know something about the environment and you can bring that past experience with it into this new situation. Exactly. Yeah. In the real world, right? When you encounter a scenario that falls into a comfortable realm, like for example, if you walk into a bank, you know that you might have to get in a particular line to get up and talk to a teller. And you know, some of the sorts of behaviors that you're going to have to exhibit to get what you want. So this is what we do in a day-to-day basis. It seems pretty effortless, but there's a lot of neural activity that's sort of underlying that. So if we can make little models about the system and, and sort of try to assign value to those things, we can actually really make cool predictions about what someone would do in a scenario where we don't know how they're going to behave. So you put them in a new environment or you give them a new task and you try to predict their outcome, the result of their efforts based on this model of learning. Exactly. Yeah, that's the that's the core of what she's trying to do. 
Great. What does that look like, like in the lab? Like what is, how does she test that? Yeah. So what that looks like is after they've designed sort of a theoretical model of what they think, what are the, these are the important variables where we think that maybe a human or an animal is doing. She actually a lot, most of the time works with humans and she brings humans in and she gives them games that they've never encountered before. She gives them rules and goals in mind, for example, maximize the number of points in this game. But the person is trying to figure that out. So they're getting rewarded, they're being punished, and they're trying different things out to get to that goal. And along the way, she's sometimes using brain scanners. So she's looking just at brain activity and correlating it. But a lot of times she's just looking at their behavior and just trying to detect, Does do my models, do my equations actually fit up to the way humans or animals actually behave? Oh, man, this is, sounds great. I think I'm ready to learn about learning. Well, I'm excited for you to hear it. So Dr. Niv, take us away. All right, guys, you know the drill. Perk up them cochlea. Yep. All right. Princeton University uh, in the psychology department and in the neuroscience department. What are the large scope questions and the problems that you are trying to address currently in your lab? So my history is in thinking about and studying learning, specifically the kind of learning that we do on a day-to-day basis from kind of learning from trial and error, learning from feedback, not learning from a teacher that tells us what to do, but learning from the from our interaction with the environment. This field of studies is called reinforcement learning. And and we know a lot about reinforcement learning, but only in very simple scenarios. And what my lab is trying to do is understand how do we learn in real world situations where it's a mess. There are lots of stimuli around. There are lots of things that could potentially be important for obtaining rewards, for instance, or for not getting punishments. But it's not really clear which things in our environment are relevant, which things are irrelevant, kind of what are the rules of the game. So we're thinking about how do we learn what are the rules of the game when there's a new game in town, whether it be a new video game that we're learning or whether it be, you know, learning to cross the street when we were a child. How do we learn that when you cross the street, the colors of the cars coming at you are not important, their speed is important, the shops across the street are not important. Most of what's around you is not important. How do we learn that? How do we know that? How do you make that leap then from the lab to the real world? In the real world, it's messy. That's a really good question because in the end, even though I'm talking about crossing the street, we don't study people crossing streets. You don't streets. make people cross the street and No, uh, no, see I what don't they... think that would be approved you by like, them. You could like Frogger, like the car, like that game. Did you ever play that game? I did, yeah. I did. It's one of see the few what... video games that I played and I <laughs> loved it as a kid. But see, that game is also very simplified. Yeah. We're interested in the in the task-specific sense in which, you know, I can stand on a street corner and want to cross the street so I'll ignore the colors of the cars. I can stand in that same place and try to hail a taxi or wait for a friend to pick me up, and now I will look at the colors of the cars. So it's not something that the environment tells me. Mm-hmm. It's something that my current goal tells me. And so when you're playing Frogger, the goal is specified for you, and you don't have to make that decision. So it's still not a good analogy. Yeah. 
so we've been struggling with that quite a bit and thinking about what can we study in a controlled environment in the lab that will be representative of this situation in the real world. Mm. One thing that we do is we give people tasks in which they're looking at stimuli that have several dimensions, let's say a shape, a, a, a color, a texture, but we tell them in advance that only one of these dimensions is important for reward and we just look at how they learn that. So this is a really simplified situation but at least it has the aspect of having these irrelevant dimensions that you have to learn from trial and error which of them are irrelevant. Mm -hmm. So you might say, you know, that's a far cry from crossing the street. And it is. But that kind of task has not been studied in this context of how do we learn what is the relevant dimension. Like you said, that we, we have to take baby steps to go right from the lab to the real world. So you've kind of described a little bit about having humans do tasks. Do you have any other ones that we, we haven't talked about that you use to answer these questions? So we mostly do our experiments on humans and experiments involve indeed playing very simplified video games, actually simpler than than Frogger. but. You know, and the dimension, the compl the complexity there is in the dimensions that matter for our questions. But we also scan their brains while they do that. And in many cases, not in all the experiments, we find that behavior is actually a lot more revealing than looking at people's brains. Hmm. Yeah. It turns out that if you want to understand learning, seeing what people decide to do is in many cases much more revealing than seeing what areas in their brain are active because the areas in their brain can do lots of different things and we don't know what they're doing. So we can constrain, the behavior constrains what we think about the brain, but the brain almost doesn't constrain anything. The other thing that we do is computational modeling. Okay. So what we try to do is cast our hypotheses. So we're, we're talking about learning and learning is a dynamic process. What you do right now is different from what you're going to do in 10 minutes because in those 10 minutes you've learned. So we can't ask, you know, what's your, we can't average over behavior and say, what's the like typical thing that you do? Because we're interested in how your behavior changed over time. So that's where the computational models come in. What we do is we computationally try to be very specific about saying what piece of information now will affect what you're going to do later and how is it going to affect it? So you got a reward or you didn't get a reward. That piece of information how exactly is it going to affect what you believe is most rewarding in the environment? So in that sense, we're modeling things that are not behavioral. We're modeling your beliefs, your um, expectations. What do you expect will give you more reward? What do you expect will give you less reward? But then to test those models and to ask, is, is my hypothesis about how things are being updated in the brain correct? It turns out that it's easier to test that on behavior because if I say, well, I think you're going to expect more reward from the blue option than from the red option, I can just test whether you're going to choose the blue option or the red option. But if I look at your brain, it's a whole different question of, you know, your brain might represent both the red and the blue option because you're making the choice. It might represent one a little bit more strongly, but in some areas it might represent the other a little bit more strongly. It's going to be much harder to test our hypothesis on the brain than it is in behavior because we're talking about learning to obtain rewards. So it's easy to tell a subject, your goal is to get as many points as possible and just see what they do Yeah, <laughs> and, and test our hypotheses on that behavior. So you're taking concepts like expectation and providing, are you giving it a numerical value or some sort of variable? Exactly, kind of? it's okay. exactly that. It's a very high level. So we're not modeling what a neuron in the brain would do, or even what a whole area in the brain would do. We're modeling how information gets 
integrated into decisions in the sense exactly like you said what's the input the input is i got rewarded when i chose the blue i didn't get rewarded when i chose the red maybe the next time i chose the blue i didn't get rewarded but mostly i got rewarded when i chose the blue and how does all that past information get integrated into some some choice in the future i mean i can call it belief but really what we're measuring is the choice and what we assume is that behind these choices are some representations obviously in the brain, because where else would they be, representations of the worth of different options in the world. So the blue option is worth more than the red option. So we're asking, how do you compute this worth in your brain? How does each reward or non-reward that you get get integrated into that? Do you average them all out? Do you take into account more what you got recently? And so this is learning in general, but then we're thinking about these different dimensions. So do you attribute the reward that you got to the green triangle with polka dots, or do you attribute it separately to green, separately to triangle, separately to polka dots, or do you already know that the shape doesn't matter, so you don't attribute it to triangle at all? So we're really thinking of values for these different things in your brain, and how do these values get updated with every piece of information? We'll come back to that in a little bit, but before, we, can we take a little aside sure. and do a little kind of uh, history? Would you be able to just start by telling us where you grew up, and then maybe did you have any impetus to be a scientist? Like, what was the thing that made you be like, you know, science is pretty cool, I like that? <laughs> So I grew up in Israel, um, and I lived in Israel my whole life, except for four years in which I lived in New Jersey because my dad was doing a postdoc at Rutgers University. Oh, really? Yeah. What does he study? He um, He's a physicist. Okay. And after his postdoc, he left academia. Okay. But at that point, uh, and he continued to be a physicist, but just not in academia. Yeah. <laughs> okay, yeah. Uh, so I... In second grade, when I was in second grade, we moved to New Jersey, and that's why, you know, I have this American accent. I was going to say, though, you have a very good American yeah, accent. Yeah, even though it's totally a second language for and me. And it's not a Jersey, I wouldn't say extreme Jersey accent, but... I think I was young enough to yeah. not get the Jersey accent. <laughs> Maybe it's a TV, you know, it's a kind of bland American accent, Yeah, what, what you hear on TV. The Colorado or... That's what they say is the neutral. I don't know. Yeah, quite neutral. <laughs> so in Israel, a lot of TV is in English and it's not dubbed. Mm -hmm. It's We have um, subtitles. So yeah. even when we went back to Israel, I heard a lot of English in that neutral. Okay. Uh, neutral uh, accent. What was your experience um, like in New Jersey too? Do you have a good time? You were, did you say two years old or wait? Were no, I was, grade? I was in second grade. Oh, second grade. And okay. for four years. So I, I kind okay. of feel like my childhood was in yeah. New Jersey. Because, you know, then I, I was a teenager when we came back to Israel. Mm. Um, and I don't remember anything from before that. I think the change, big changes yeah. make sometimes erase your previous memory. So mm -hmm. um, it was nice. It was, it was, it was very nice um, in some senses. It was also, I, I was a very shy kid. I didn't have a lot of friends. Mm -hmm. Moving to a new country and then moving back does not help. Um, so for a while, it was very. And that was you were at parents. you were right in adolescence, I assume, right? That's like sixth grade or something, right? When yeah, you moved fifth back, grade, yeah. When we moved back, end of fifth That's grade. That's tough. Yeah, it's, it's tough, but you know, it's very interesting because my whole life, I've found that the people that I more easily make friends with are people who had a similar experience in their childhood, and it's not that I know that and then we become friends. I become friends with someone and then we tell our life stories and oh yeah, when they were a kid, they also lived in another country for a yeah. few years. So I wonder if there's something that you get from that. Some <laughs> You can just tell us a success. I don't know, something, something in your personality about understanding differences and similarities between people. I mean it's a it's a big deal to go to another country, especially coming from Israel. 
Israelis really look up to the U.S. as, you know, the country where everything is much better. <laughs> <laughs> and then you come to the it U.S. Has. and you see that it's kind of the same. Yeah. <laughs> but it's different. They speak a different language and everything, but it's the same. So I, I felt that that is a, is a formative experience as a child to realize that different countries are kind of, well, people are just people everywhere. So, yeah. So my dad is a physicist and my mom is a social worker. Okay. Which is actually a very classic combination in Israel because the departments, social work and physics departments, are usually across the street from each other. Always? Because of <laughs> physics. <laughs> physics is only men and social work oh, is mostly like... women. So there's, okay. there's so many couples that makes a lot of, of physicists and a social worker. Well, that's good. At, that at least in that generation. <laughs> Hopefully, you know, things have become more gender balanced over the years. Yeah. But I always thought I'd be a physicist. You did. Okay. Like my dad. You looked up to him or like what he did and... Completely. Yeah. Um, and I majored in physics in high school. And then when I was going to university, my dad asked, what are you, what do you think you're going to study? Because in Israel, when you sign up for university, when you start college, you already have to say what you want to be when you grow up, pretty much. You have to, you have to declare immediately. And that determines all your courses of study. You have no choice or freedom to choose other courses because there are already too many on the list. <laughs> um, so my dad asked me, what do you think you're going to study? And I said, well, I was thinking physics. And then came the big one. He said, really, why would you do that? Are you interested in it? And I'd kind of never thought to ask myself, am I really interested in it? I just always thought I'd be a physicist just like my dad. Oh, I don't know. Um, actually, not really. <laughs> yeah, like what? Like what do you study, dad? Like what particles? Eh? No. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was something that I could do. I was good at it, but... Interested is a different question. Yeah. And so that was a big aha moment of no, 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 no. Maybe yeah. that's not what I want to do. And then I started getting all interdisciplinary, like, oh, maybe I'll go to environmental studies. Maybe I'll, you know, what am I going to do? What am I really interested in? Okay. So what did you, did you find something then or did you try, you tried things out, I guess? Um, no, I actually didn't go to college that year. Um, I was, I was actually really dismayed that I had to decide what I want to do from the start because that's a, that's a scary decision. And, and I was more familiar with the college system here, I guess, because I, I continued reading in English, even when I went back to Israel. So I, I don't know if you know, but, um, so Hebrew used to be kind of the language of the book because nobody spoke it. It was before, you know, I'm talking about like a hundred years ago, people didn't really speak Hebrew. It was just the, the Bible, the old Testament was in Hebrew. Mm. And for me, the language of the book was English because I read in English. <laughs> I spoke in Hebrew. Okay, um, so you flipped it. So I, yeah, so I, I've read in English my whole teenage years. So I thought of college as it is here and was shocked to, to find out that it's different in Israel. I was completely naive to what the system is like there. And when I found out, I was like, ha, ha. and especially that now I knew that I didn't want to do physics, but I didn't know what I wanted to do. So I just went to guide hikes in the Society for Preservation of Nature instead. Oh, that's cool. That's fun. <laughs> and in that year, I read a book called Gödel Escherbach. Yeah. You might have I'm heard about it. I'm familiar with this book, yeah. yeah. Someone suggested to me to read this book, and when I asked him what the book is about, he said, it's about everything. Yeah. I said, really? How can that be? He said, it is. And I started reading it, and it is in some sense about mm -hmm. everything. It's about how math and music and art are all the same thing in some sense and about the logic of the world and the lot and it talks a lot about the brain mm -hmm. and reading that book I realized oh my god the brain that's a thing that is 
most fascinating for me. Like I haven't, I'd never, I, we didn't have neuroscience in school. I'd never really thought much about the brain, but reading that book, I was just completely captivated. Yeah. That's awesome. I actually, yeah, that book was uh, given a uh, suggestion to me and I started reading it and it was so fascinating. And then it started getting to the hardcore Godel's uh, theories of sets. And at the time I was just like, nope, no, I just can't, I just like shut down. I wanted to like, I wanted to put it all together because that sounded so fascinating to have this sort of, you know, idea that explains art and music, which at the time I was like really into. So, so you know, many people in, in, my generation, kind of many people read that book, but I don't know many that end that finished it. It's 700 pages. I got to page 400. Yeah. But for a while, I, I would ask you people, know. what page did you get to? And, you know, so you don't have to feel bad. Even if you just get to page 50, yeah. it's, I, I, there are dialogues between Achilles and the tortoise. Yeah. I loved those. So I read all of those. Yes, and I actually, like skipped I everything between them. That's where I started too. <laughs> that was the yeah. thing I could like sort of be like, okay, I can grid my hand on this. So that book brought me to neuroscience and specifically to computational neuroscience. And it's yeah. interesting that um, there's a whole generation, kind of my generation, many of the computational neuroscientists, if you ask them, and I've, I've done this kind of informal yeah. uh, research oh. of like, how did you get to computational neuroscience? That's the book. It really? made a field. That's fantastic. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> many people say, well, I've read some book. You might not have heard of it. Oh, yeah, I've heard about it. Yeah. Nice. <laughs> yeah. And I recently met Douglas Schofstadter, who is the author of the book. Yeah. Yeah. Um, because I was visiting his university, and uh, so I told him, you know, you made this field. I'm sure not. You're not. You're not the, I'm not, I'm the, not first. the first person to tell you that. Yeah, um, yeah it was that's, nice to meet funny. him after oh, all of cool. this. That was the spark, I guess. Mm -hmm. From there, did you say I'm, I want to be a neuroscientist, or did you? Say, I want to be a computational neuroscientist. So I wanted to study memory. So you know, people say that we all study our own vices. So my memory is very strange and actually very bad. I'm terrible at remembering names. I'm terrible at remembering faces. I now know that I have a condition called congenital prosopagnosia. Like it actually oh, yeah. has a name. Is um, that okay? Is that face blindness? So prosopagnosia is people who cannot recognize faces and it's usually due to a lesion in your yeah. brain. Congenital prosopagnosia has only been described recently and it's um, and it's a spectrum. And it's a problem with recognizing faces that is not due to a lesion, I'm happy to say. Uh, and it's not clear what, what it is due to. It might run in the family because people in my family, my sister is the same way as well. But in my case, it's quite extreme. So I, I, heard, I heard someone give a talk about this. And that was the first time I knew that there is this thing called congenital prosopagnosia. This was last year. And I... After the, the session, there was a banquet dinner. And at the end of dinner, I went to this woman and I, I said, you know, it was amazing to hear your talk because I have congenital prosopagnosia. And she said, well, you know, many people think that. I said, well, let me tell you, you know, let, let me give you an example. It's, it's the end of the banquet now. Everybody's going home. The whole banquet, I've been looking at you, wanting to come talk to you, but I was afraid it wasn't really you yeah. because I can't really remember, even though... When she gave the talk, I thought, I really want to talk to her. I should memorize what she looks like. And still, I cannot for yeah. sure recognize her later. So I told her that, and she said, yes, you have it. So so, so that's only one weird aspect of my memory. So when I got very interested in the brain, what I really wanted to know was, can, are there different memory strategies for different people? And can we can we learn new memory strategies? Is it, is it something that we can control and change our memory strategies or not? And it's interesting that that's what I was interested in because I've never studied that. 
got that, you in the door, though. But that was the first thing. So the first class I took was called Human Memory. That's what I wanted to learn. Yeah. That class was mostly about human forgetting. <laughs> that's what you, yeah. When people study memory, they look at how people forget. Yeah. Um, that class was in a psychology department. And the first semester or first year, I studied mostly psychology. And I was disappointed for two reasons. One is the psychology department at Tel Aviv University, a lot of the students want to become clinical psychologists. And it's like pre-meds here. It's very competitive. So they're really into, you know, two more points on their grade. And that was just, I had no patience for that. <laughs> Not wanting to be a clinical psychologist, it wasn't my thing. So I felt like the department was too stressed out and needed to go to a psychologist to, yeah. for some therapy. <laughs> and the other thing was I felt that the questions were super interesting and the tools were really too imprecise for me. And admittedly, you know, it's a personal taste issue. And also, I was a first year student. What did I know about the tools? Really not much. But after a year in psychology, I pretty much moved over to the other side of campus to acquire some computational tools. Okay. I took some classes in statistics and physics and math and whatever. And ended up once I had that behind me and programming and also neuroscience and biology, cell biology, all of that. And once I had that, I felt that now with the tools, I can come back to the questions that I still am most interested in. And interestingly, now I'm in a neuroscience department, in a psychology department, I feel totally comfortable as a psychologist because what I care about is human behavior and understanding behavior. But I needed those other tools to be precise about what I say about behavior. And once I had them, I could get a master's in psychology. And then um, from then on, it was psychology. Cool, that's great. A lot of us say, I'm interested in the brain. I wanna know how this process works. But would you say that sort of like as a psychologist, you have that, those, the psychological problems on your on your brain the most, and then you find the tools to answer them? So, so you know, we're incredibly lucky that different people have different tastes and are interested in different questions. I'm so happy that people study synapses because I don't want to do it, but I want to know the answer. Yeah, exactly. Um, so if you're really interested in behavior and in order to understand behavior, you want to understand the brain, then you're a psychologist and that's me. If you're really interested in the brain, in order to understand the brain, you have to understand behavior, then you're a neuroscientist. And many people... <laughs> many of my colleagues are fundamentally neuroscientists. They really want to know how that synapse works, not as part of a different big question. They just, that is the question. Yeah. But for me, that's only a tool on the way yeah. to a different question, which is how, how do we make the choices and behaviors that we do? And, and how can I, it's not, I was going to say, how can I learn to predict that? But it's not so much, prediction is not a, a, a goal. It's, it's really, you know, indulging in our own curiosity. I just want to understand. Yeah. <laughs> just want to understand it. Good. I guess I totally agree with you where you said when you just go home, like what is the question that's really exciting you the next day when you come in? Yeah. And it's an interesting question to ask yourself, what do I, what do I think about when I go home? Or I ask myself, what do I get most excited about and I want to tell other people about? And for, you know, so I'm a computational neuroscientist, but actually both the computation and the neuroscience are not the things that I get most ex excited about. I use models as a way of thinking in a way of organizing my my thoughts and my knowledge. But I noticed at some point that I, I go to, as a scientist, you go to a lot of talks and you hear about a lot of people's research. And I hear about other people's models, but it's rare that I leave a talk and I think, oh, what a great model. I mean, they are great, but I'm not so excited about them as to tell somebody about it. But I hear about a really clever experiment 
behavioral experiment usually. And I think, wow, so simple, so elegant. Why did, you know, how, how did people not think about this before? So that's where I, I, that's how I became an experimentalist because actually I was completely a theoretician until the end of my PhD. Okay. Just sitting and writing models and simulating them in a computer and trying to explain data that were already out there. And at some point I started doing experiments myself and it was, part of it was just seeing that I'm, I'm most excited about really clever experiment, experiments that test ideas in a clever way, much more than, than the models. Do you have like a, do you have a memory of a one yeah. that really just was like, yeah, that's great. Yeah. So it's, it's also a, it's one that I give sometimes as an example of why behavior is so useful for understanding. So think about an experiment like this. A rat runs down a maze that has a central corridor, and then they have to choose to either go right or to go left to get food. So that's called a tea maze. It's the shape of a tea. They're running down the like stem of the tea and they go left or right. And let's say there's food on the right. So they do this several times and they find the food on the right. And now the question is, what did they learn to do? Did they learn to turn right? Or did they learn to run to that area in space? So, you know, they see the room around the maze. These mazes typically don't have um, um, a roof or a ceiling. So they can see the, the, uh, the room around them. And, and in fact, these mazes are usually put in rooms that have some uh, landmarks, you know, pictures on the wall or cupboards or whatever. So did they learn to run towards the area with the picture on the wall or did they learn to go right? And so now you can think, okay, you know, where do I record from in the brain to find out what their strategy is? And this is, this is important. Are they learning an action or are they learning a global map of the environment? It's a, it's a really big question. And it's not clear what you should look at in order to answer that question. But then the really clever thing that the experimenters did is just turn the maze around so that what was right before, the, the arm that was the right arm is now in the left side of the room. It's kind of hard, you know. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's, it's hard to describe this in words without, yeah, take you know, the tea, I'm turning. Take the tea and flip it 180 degrees. So, flip yeah. it so that the arms are, the, the top bar of the T is still in the same place, but the stem, if the stem was below the bar, now it's above that. And now put the rat in the maze and see if the rat goes right, then they chose to, then they learned to go right. If the rat now goes left, he's going to the same part of the room where the reward was before. So in a very simple manipulation, you can test their strategy. You don't have to record a single neuron in the brain. You don't have to, just that manipulation. I remember learning that as an undergrad and thinking, oh my God, that is so elegant. And simple, yeah. It's just beautiful. Yeah. So that kind of experiment I get excited about. That's There's cool. nothing complex about it. There's nothing computational about it. It's just a totally elegant, direct way of asking the question that you wanted to ask. Yeah. And then the cool, I mean, then like people can get excited about why is this kind of memory different? Why did they use that strategy and not another? You're like, I have evidence that that's what's going on. So now Yeah. So in this case, it yeah. turned out that... Um, different rats will also learn different, use different strategies. So now you can study individual differences. Why did these rats learn a global strategy of learning the map of the environment? And these rats learned a, uh, what's called an egocentric strategy of turning right as an action. You, you, can, you can ask many follow-up questions after this one yeah. elegant test. What was your kind of like graduate career and maybe like something after graduate career? Can you just tell me about what that part of your life was like and where, what you were thinking at the time? My, so as an undergrad, I, I was um, an undergrad at Tel Aviv University in Israel, and 
like that whole experience, one, one other way in which that whole experience is completely different from undergrad, um, from college in the U.S. is, well, we don't have sports at all or any of the teams or no. uh, none of that. Mm-hmm. It's completely different. Um, we do it. We go to. What do, we, what do you go to, to? I don't know. Well, we go to college after military service. We're adults in a different way. I mean, we're older. It's not a continuation of high school in any way. We don't necessarily live on campus. It's just we go there to to study. We go to take classes, but it's not a whole yeah. environment that you um, you're a fan of. You don't become a fan of your school in any way. And most people work um, okay. to because. By the time you've left home, went to the army for two, three years, you don't want to come back and say, okay, now mom and dad, can you um, rent me an apartment and pay all my bills? So many yeah. people work. So I worked as a software programmer all through my studies. Uh, and Because then that was the thing that pays <laughs> in Israel. <then. laughs> so you had a nice place. And, uh... Yeah. So it started for one day a week. And then more and more and more. And by the time I was a master's student, so also we... Um, in Israel, you, you now it's different, but it used to be that you can't go directly to PhD after college. You have to do a master's degree. As a master's student, I worked more and more and did my thesis uh, more and more in nights and weekends. Oh man, <laughs> because I loved my job too. I was managing a team. I actually it, it was really great. I was doing data mining. It was really interesting. Um, and then came the decision point at the end of my master's degree. I knew that if I want to go to grad school, well, master's also grad school, but go do a PhD, that's a full-time job. You can't do that in the weekends and nights anymore. And also at work, I was up for promotion, but if I wanted that, I was already working like crazy hours, but it would have to be a full-time job. I knew that these were incompatible at this point, that there's only so far that you can um, have, you know, two different lives. And the question was, what do I want to do? What do I want to do? And I couldn't decide in decision making. So, you know, I said we study our vices. Mm-hmm. I study decision making. Yeah. <laughs> I so wanted to hard. study memory, but I ended up studying decision making. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and I had a really hard time making the decision. And finally, I thought, OK, let's assume I want both of these and I'm going to do both of these. Which one do I want to do first? And that was a much easier decision. It was very obvious that first you go get your degree because being a young manager and stuff, that doesn't help. I mean, it's better, especially for women. It's like all these things together. It's like you don't get that much respect when you're a young woman manager. And going back to grad school later is really hard. Whereas first getting your degree and then going to be a manager, much better. I never went back. Okay, yeah. (laughs) But the decision then was, well, let's do this first. Okay. So where did you go study then? So I went to the Hebrew University, which had a program. So what I didn't say is my undergraduate degree in the end was in this crazy program called the interdisciplinary program, where you can basically do whatever you want, which is kind of like the college system here. So I managed to find a program that allows me to do what I wanted to do. And so I don't actually have a, a BA yeah. because it goes directly to, to master's. And my master's is in, in psychology. Okay, cool. Um, and then from that, I went to, there is a program called the Interdisciplinary Center for Neural Computation. So finally, oh. I could have something with the title neural computation. And I felt like a what's called a computational neuroscientist. So that, that just seemed like the right thing to do. Yeah. So I went to that program. Um, but I ended up doing most of my research in London at oh, University okay. College London with Peter Dayan. I had I had two advisors for my master's degree, one in computer science, one in psychology, Aitan Rupin and Daphna Joel. And as a person who, I, I had a great time with 
both of them giving me different, uh, you know, one pulling me to the psychology world and one to the computer science world and giving both inputs. So I decided I want to continue that. And I had three advisors for my PhD, one in London, Peter Diane, one in Tel Aviv University, Daphne Joel, who I kept from my master's and another one at Hebrew University. So I, I would joke with people that I collect advisors on the way. (laughs) (laughs) That's good that you must be someone that they want to, you don't want to help you and like be a part of it. Did you have, so you had three advisors, did they all have different styles? I guess like completely, completely. Yeah. Okay. Did you pick up something from each one of them? Definitely. Okay. Yeah. So, so the reason I did that, it was really a deliberate decision in some sense. I remember going to Daphne Joel before I even started my PhD and saying, you know, I don't know what I'm going to study next, but I want to keep you on the team, so oh, to speak. Yeah. Will you do you agree? Because I want you to com- to keep me rooted in behavior and in data. Because as I said, I was a theoretician then. It's really easy to to do your theory and kind of lose touch of data. And she does experiments in rats, hardcore data. And I needed her to keep me rooted in the right. data. So she kept me rooted in the data. And then Peter Dan is the smartest person I know, and is a wonderful theoretician. So I learned all the theory from him, and Daphna kept me yeah. tied to the real world. Did you go? Did you get a job after that, doing a professor or something, or do do, do something <laughs> else? Yeah. So I went to be a postdoc, like yeah. most people do after their PhD, with Jonathan Cohen at Princeton, and I was incredibly lucky because if it's a few months after I arrived, a job opening. They had a job opening that was was really a perfect fit for me. Um, I didn't think I could apply. I just started. I actually hadn't submitted my thesis yet. Yeah. So I wasn't. (laughs) I I didn't have a PhD to my name. Yeah. Um, It was like you just had to finish the thing. You had already done. No. (laughs) And I remember. Just a formality. I remember coming to lab meeting and John Cohen saying, "Um, after lab meeting, KL, can you come? I'd like to talk to you in my office. And I thought, oh, no. He's going to say, I'm always late and it's really disruptive because I'm late for everything. I really felt like, you know, I'm going to have a talking to. And then I went to his office and he said, you know, I think you should apply for this job. What? Yeah. Um, (laughs) So I was very lucky that this job opened just then in in this configuration and that John um, supported me in applying for that because I really would not have thought of doing it. And I got the job. Yeah. And it was amazing. Um, I, I deferred by a year, so I stayed a postdoc in his lab for another year. Okay. But right after that, I became faculty at, at Princeton. And I'm saying I'm very lucky because um, usually departments don't like to hire their own postdocs. So I think a year or two later, had that job opened, I would not have been a viable candidate. But because I had only been there two months, I could say, well, I'm not, you know, I'm not an insider here. Yeah. And so I could get the job. And I think otherwise, or I, I just wouldn't have been able to. Yeah. to compete for it. You're right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, did you, so now you, you got the job, you're now a full-time professor. So now it's like, what did, what were the questions at that point that you were trying to answer? So it wasn't that long ago. <laughs> so now we're talking six years ago, Yeah. Okay. maybe, maybe seven by now. Um, so it was the same questions that I started with. Yeah. I'd started our conversation with. So okay, from good. the start, the question was, okay, I've been studying reinforcement learning and, um, and working on how do we learn from trial and error throughout my whole master's and PhD okay. thesis, actually. It, it sounds like, you know, I started from this interdisciplinary, blah, 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 I'm interested in memory, but then I really did the same thing for a long time. <laughs> it, it just happened to be that way. 
Um, and from the start, the question was, not how do we learn? So what I described before is, how do I learn the value of blue and the value of red? And that's what we already know a lot about, both in the brain and in behavior and reinforcement learning models. And I knew a lot about that, and I'd worked on that. But that assumes that someone told you that blue and red are the things to learn about. And I'd had an experience. I, ha I had done one experiment at that point on people. At the very end of my PhD, I'd run an experiment in which people had to learn, you know, values for different colors. And, and you know, one stimulus was red and always gave zero points. And one was yellow and always gave 20 points. And one was blue and always gave 40 points. And one was green and sometimes gave zero and sometimes gave 40 points. Really easy task because on every trial, you see two of these stimuli. You choose one, you get the points, and you have 130 trials. You'd think, you know, how hard is it to learn? Most of them just always give you the same amount of points. And being a theoretician in a theoretician's lab, I, you know, didn't even know anything about institutional review boards and getting approval or anything, and I had no funding for this. So I ran the experiment as a pilot study on my colleagues. So these are really smart computational neuroscientists. And some of them, after 130 trials, were still kind of at chance level and had not learned this. And you're like, come on, this I is know. easy. And so I ask them at the end, you know, if that? I give you this, you know, how, how much, how many points do you think you'll get for the red stimulus? How, how many points for blue, the blue stimulus? And some people could just tell me, you know, 20, 40, et cetera. And some people said, well, it depends. If it's on the right side of the screen, and last time that I chose it, it was on the left, and now it's going to give me 40. And if it's, you know, so they had these very elaborate stories about what was going on. And so I realized, first of all, for that experiment, I realized that I didn't give them enough instructions. And I should have told them that what matters is the color. But then came the question, how do we learn what matters? Yeah. Because there's always more than just, you know, in this case, it was the colors, but there is the location of the stimuli on the screen. There's my previous choices, because that could really be a, a, an important determinant of what I will get reward for in the future. So if you're foraging, for instance, you're gathering, you know, fruit from a tree, the tree that you've already gathered all the fruit from doesn't have any more fruit. Yeah. So it's not unreasonable to think that if I've previously chosen the red stimulus and gotten 40 points from it, now it doesn't have 40 points yeah. there anymore. And so next time I choose it, I'll get a zero. So instead of telling themselves, this is just chance, she's flipping a coin 50% of the time, I get 40 points. They're thinking, no, this has to do with my previous choices. Totally reasonable. Yeah. People will do that. Animals will do that too. And that made me think, you know, we've, we've not tackled the hard question here, which is not how do I learn the value of red, but how do I know that red is a thing to learn a value for and not red when I chose it previously versus red when I didn't choose it previously. Yeah. So that's when I started my lab. That was a big question. It all came from this experiment, from seeing my colleagues fail at learning a simple yeah. task and realizing that this is, if I study learning, this is a big part of learning, learning what's relevant. Can we talk about this theory that you've come up with to, to kind of describe what you just got at, which is that a lot of times you're making assumptions that the, uh, the participants are, you know, that they're learning that the color is the predictive force. But actually, when you ask them, they said, no, I was learning. I was doing this other strategy or I had this other story that I was telling myself that is how I did it. So uh, when we're using animals, right, we can't ask them to tell us that we have this problem or I can't say, hey, rat, what strategy are you using? So first of all, I'd like to say that I try to treat my human subjects as rats as much as I can. <laughs> <laughs> I often say to my students that they 
they're like bigger rats with no fur and less and, and no tail and less fur. <laughs> but what I mean is, I'm trying to study those same mechanisms of trial and error learning without all our explanatory mechanisms. Um, just because I'm interested, you know, it's it's a question of of each person's taste. My t I, I'm interested in that question of basic learning, the way animals do it and we do it. Not the very high cognitive, you know, I'm learning math and rats can't learn math. So for instance, we make people, so in our experiments, we ask them to make their decisions very quickly because we don't want them to overthink it. We don't want them, you know, to think about the pros and cons of that red and that blue. We just want them to make their decision kind of like a rat would make it with those quick deciding mechanisms, not the cognitive thinking it through solving the puzzle. And in that sense, we also never believe what they say. Yeah. <laughs> so even if we ask them later, what were you... Humans like to lie all the time. Well, we, they don't lie on purpose. They, I don't think we always have access to the reasons for our decisions. So if my basal ganglia, for instance, decided that the red stimulus had a higher value, and so I chose the red stimulus, I might not know that consciously, and I can't describe that. And Or you'll make a yeah. story up that fits yeah. kind of yeah. your narrative or something. Yeah, so we ask them... Because it sometimes gives us insight on, you know, what went wrong with the experiment or what, you know, how to think of better instructions next time or just, you know, just for insight. But we almost never analyze what the, the post-experiment questionnaires, we never analyze them. They're just kind of for, for a good to know basis. Um, and we don't believe them necessarily. We believe choice. <laughs> we don't believe in verbal descriptions of why that choice was made. Um, maybe that's a little bit extreme, but, you know, if they were rats, that would be the same. Um, but in general, the theory that you asked about, so the theory in the end is really simple, I think, and really basic. So what is learning? So learning is my experience at this time point is relevant to what's going to happen later, right? I can learn from it. I can generalize from it to what's going to happen later. So I cross the street and a car honks at me and I have to, you know, run to the other side of the street, what do I learn from that experience to another, to the next time I cross the street? So now the question is, when I come to cross the street and I'm thinking, should I go or should I stop and wait? Um, should I jaywalk, for instance? I might say, well, all the times I've jaywalked at this exact intersection, I mean, I'm not saying this consciously, but, you know, it might... My basal ganglia will say, well, you know, the times of, of all the times I've jaywalked in this intersection, only once I've been honked at. So this is kind of, this is, this is safe. I can do it. But that seems kind of, you know, why would I learn only from this intersection? Or should I, should I think about even more precisely all the times I've been in this intersection and a blue car was parked on the left, right? That would be ridiculous if I took that blue car into account. So going back to the question of what is relevant, it's really the question of what do I, generalize over? Do I generalize over all the times I've crossed this street, no matter what color cars were coming? Even even not only this intersection, maybe all the intersections? No, maybe only intersections of streets that are this narrow. If it's a five-lane highway, I probably don't want to generalize from that to this intersection. So really, what I think about now is that learning is that a big part of learning what are the rules of the game is deciding what situations are similar enough that I want to average over them, that I want to use experience from one to learn about the other. So if the cars are different colors, I'm going to discount that. I'm not going to take that into account, and I'm going to, I'm going to learn from this situation to the other situation. But if I'm in New York versus in Princeton, those are, you know, 
different enough. The rules of the game are different enough yes. there that I won't learn from one to the other. Or even more, if I go to London and the cars are now coming from the other side yeah. of the street. Or right? something, it's changed enough, like you just said, the example is so many things have changed. You're like, I'm in New York. This is, I need to... Right, because in New York, people do jaywalk on five-lane streets. Yeah. And it's completely fine. And they don't even look like they're in a hurry. And even though the taxi drivers are crazy, like they don't get run over. I don't know. It's just there are different. It's it's a jungle there. And the jungle rules hold, right? So you learn very quickly. And I used to live in New York and compute to Princeton that you, you need to have two sets of rules, even though these are all... so. You want to have one set of rules for crossing the street in general. You don't want to have a set of rules for each intersection, but you do need to have two sets of rules, one for New York, one for Princeton, mm -hmm. one for small cities, one for big cities, or, or, or maybe New York is just its own thing. Yeah. Okay. So these <laughs> are so, categories so, of so, strategies or something, right? So the idea is you take in all your information and you try to cluster it together to hear all these situations are similar enough that I'm going to generalize across them. And all these situations, these other situations are similar to themselves, but different from those first ones so so the idea is that learning the rules of the game is learning where to draw boundaries between situations and say these are one set of situations and these are the other and sometimes that boundary is almost invisible so the situations can look very similar but you realize that you know so, so for instance the London versus versus or let's say Cambridge versus Princeton so Princeton looks kind of like Cambridge or like Oxford, they've tried hard to make it look similar, right? So those situations can look very similar. You're standing on the street, and maybe there's no car coming at you right now, so you don't you don't have a cue to tell you are they coming from the left or from the right. Mm -hmm. But you still need to separate those two in your mind because the strategies have to be very different. You have to you know look right, left, right, or left, right, left. It's really important. It's so important that they write it on the street and in in the UK everywhere it says look right. I can't remember now which know. one it says. Yeah, I've never been there, I so I know. Says, I, would I think fail. it says look right. Um, yeah. because we're used to looking left first. So in that sense, situations that look very similar might still have different rules, and you want to know that and you want to separate them in your mind. So we're thinking about how does this separation happen? What are the cl clues for separation? So the clues for separation could be these situations are different enough, or the clues for separation are um, in this situation, I've gotten rewards, and in this situation that looks very similar, I didn't get a reward. So maybe there's some hidden cause that's making that situation be different. And even though they look similar, I might say, you know, there's some, I, I'm going to separate them and I'm going to continue searching for that hidden cause. Um, maybe I'll never find it. You know, it's, it's interesting because it's an analogy to science, right? We see data all the time and we're asking, what's the hidden cause for these data? What, what caused this? And so I think when we learn the rules of the game, we're really trying to learn what is the causal structure in the environment? Why is it that some days I get wet and some days I don't? Well, oh, I learned that if there are you know clouds, it's more likely that it will rain and I'll get wet and I should take my umbrella in the morning. So some of these things, you know, we we already know, and some things we don't. We can't really predict the weather completely, right? We don't know what the hidden cause is exactly there, but we continue trying, right? And so I think as as humans, and I think also animals do the same thing. We have a really strong drive to understand the true causal structure of the environment. And that is all about saying, you know, there's this hidden cause that causes all these things. They're all similar because they were caused by the same thing. And all these other things are different from the first ones because they have a different hidden cause. Mm -hmm. And so that's what we've gotten to with our models. And in the end, and, and we've tested it in experiments, et cetera, and we have, um, we have quite a lot of evidence. But in the end, it's, it's really basic. And it just says, you know, 
if you want to learn from the stream of experiences in the world, and it's not trials, and it's not here, choose red from blue, and now try again, because in the real world, it's just a, a stream of experience. You have to put some boundaries and say, well, this is where an event ended, and now starts a new event, and they're different. And so we're, we're, that's what we're trying to get at. How exactly do we draw those boundaries? Okay, that's awesome. Does this help inform also how computers do tasks and things like that too? Has this already been used in a computer learning model or something? Or? That's really interesting. You know, I hadn't thought of this. It's, it's funny, coming from Gödel-Escherbach and coming kind of from AI, you know, in the, in the 80s, AI was really big, and now I. Someone just asked me the other day about AI implementations, artificial intelligence, I should say, artificial intelligence implementations of these models that we think about. And I said, "Ooh, you know, I haven't even gone to that literature for such a long time. I don't even know what's happening in artificial intelligence these days." Although, when I was very young, that was the thing that I was interested in, and so thinking about how computers learn. So computers learn very differently from us. A robot that navigates in an unfamiliar environment is still something. So we can, you know, I can come to this building here and it's the first time I've ever been here. And I can, you know, I can walk without running into things in the hallway. Um, you I did can, a great job at that, by yeah, the way. Yeah, yeah, thank you. I can even, <laughs> <hit> anything. <laughs> I can even pretty easily find the restroom, um, even though, you know, I, you know I, I can find it without getting lost and come back, etc. If you try to get a robot to do that, the robot would be very slow. So I heard, um, I, you know, things things change quickly. But about six years ago, I believe, so the state of the art, for instance, of a robot folding laundry. So people want to develop uh, robots that will do our chores and our housework okay. for us. And I Great. applaud that Great. totally. <laughs> so here is a state of the art six years ago on a robot folding laundry. It could, but this robot could only fold kitchen towels of pretty the same fold. kind. Oh. Oh. And it took it half an hour to fold one towel. <laughs> this is state of the art. Uh, six years ago, but you know, it's not. Six years ago is not that, uh, mm. not that long ago. No. If you have, you know, a simple reinforcement learning algorithm, just navigating in a, in a little maze or something like that, typically you look at the literature and people will run it for 10,000 iterations to learn the task. We do not, if we needed 10,000 times to learn to cross the street, we'd be dead. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I think we learn very differently from computers. And one of the reasons is exactly this, that we're very good at making a complex problem much simpler. Because instead of saying, when I'm navigating the hallway, I'm thinking of every pixel on my retina as input and trying to understand for different inputs, what do I do? No, I immediately say, you know, there are two walls here, floor, ceiling, right? That's very obvious. And there are doors. And I just have to find door number 524. And I know they usually go in order. And so, you know, it's it's very, it's either left or right. I find which way goes up and, and, I, and I find door 524. So I've made it into a really simple question, the same crossing the street, you know, instead of all the pixels on my retina, the question is, if a car is coming at me at this speed, do I go or do I not? That's it. It's a yes, no question. Yeah. I think if robots would be able to, would pare down the questions to simple yes, no questions, they would learn much faster too. So it's not that I'm developing algorithms for training robots, but I think this kind of insight on learning very smart representations of the environment, rather than learning with very complex representations of the environment, is is a big deal. And mm -hmm. I'm not the person, you know. So it's it's a big, 
Uh, it's something that's big right now in artificial intelligence and robotics. Now that I, th I said I don't know anything about artificial intelligence, but as I'm saying this, I realize that the whole idea of deep learning is that. And there's a lot of work now on this area called deep learning. And the idea is that you learn these it's called deep because there are these hierarchical representations of the environment. So at the high level of the hierarchy would be, it's a hallway. And underneath that, it would be, you know, the Some doors walls. on the right are even numbers and the doors on the left are, are odd numbers. And, and, and it goes down to at the very bottom is just, you know, the pixels on my retina, yeah. right? And these deep representations um, are the big deal these days in neural network learning. And I think that ties in to what we're thinking about, which is a really smart representation of your environment. When you represent it just right, it's a yes, no question. The problem is representing it just right. And in fact, what we know about the brain is a lot of the brain is devoted to learning these representations. And then the decision-making part, so I study decision-making, so it's kind of sad to say that, but the decision-making part is a small part of the brain, really important part, but it's a small part of the brain. The big part is how to ask a question right. And you might think, again, that's kind of an analogy to science, right? Yeah. And that when you ask a question right, the answer is yes, no, did the rat go right or left in that tea maze? Mm -hmm. But asking the question in the correct way is the smart thing to start with. I think our brain is a scientist. All brains are scientists. And I've, I've gotten to that conclusion from, I teach cognitive neuroscience, um, although I'm not a cognitive neuroscientist, really. I'm, you know, an animal neuroscientist, if anything. And in cognitive neuroscience, we talk about different methods of studying the brain. You can use uh, imaging and scan people's brain. You can record from uh, single neurons in animals. You can do lesions. You can do all these things. And we always say, well, really, um, we want converging evidence. And then I think about how do we as, as people or as animals learn about the world. And also the world is all these hidden causes that we don't know what they are. And some of them we might never know. I mean, gravity, have we ever seen gravity? But it's a hidden cause. It causes a lot of what's around us, right? And we totally believe it's there, even though we've never measured, we've never seen it directly. We can measure its consequences. So I think in trying to understand the world, we want converging evidence, right, for our hypotheses about how the world works. And the more I think about that, the more I think our brain is just a scientist. It wants converging evidence. I want my auditory input and my visual input and everything that I, and all my senses to convergingly tell me something. And then I believe it's there. Then I believe that this is a table. Although, you know, it just by vision, it wouldn't be so easy because, you know, it, it just looks like this orange thing and then some white next to it, right? But with all the cues, the depth and the uh, uh, obstruction of other things that I can't see under the table and all the different uh, sources of information, I can tell myself, yeah, yeah, this is a table. And this yeah. idea of trying to understand the causal structure of the environment and testing it with testing our hypotheses. So you see it in children a lot. They have a hypothesis about how the world works and they test it. They do throw that. Yeah, I was going to say. Know, throw I may... that ball and see, does it disappear behind the sofa? Yeah. What's going to happen? And they do it again and again and again and again until they are really convinced that this is a replicable piece of evidence. And so they're little scientists. Yeah. And, and as, as adults, I just think, and really in animals too, I think we are inherently all doing the same thing, which is trying to understand the causal structure around us. As scientists, we try to do that specifically about some, you know, scientific question. I want to understand what causes behavior in this different, in this way. But we all, even when we're not scientists, we all do that in our basic understanding of the world. Yeah, I think I, I, I might be misremembering this, but I think it was Carl Sagan in like Cosmos or something where he was, like you said, he said, you know, like all children are scientists. You're born that way. That is the way that we uh, experience the world, basically, or how we 
make figure rules out like you said where does a ball go after you can just if you watch children you can see they're using that as the method and and you know and i would extend that and say all rats are scientists yeah, too cool. <laughs> in, their, in, to in their own sense right <laughs> but they you know when they're navigating an environment and trying to find out is the food always there or is the food there only in some hours of the day or you know you can see a rat you know, they, they, we teach them to press levers to get food. It's kind of crazy because nowhere in the ecology of rats, do the, in their history, evolutionary history, do they, if they want food, they don't go and press somewhere else. I mean, we're used to that. We're used to turning on the light on the wall, although it, we know it's not going to, the light is somewhere in the ceiling, but we turn it on remotely. In rats' world, that doesn't happen. If you want food, you go to the food. You don't go somewhere else and press a lever. That's totally crazy. And so you think all the evolution of rats, they've never pressed, they've never done something like that. But in one hour, yeah. in a little experimental box, they can learn this thing, which is totally arbitrary. So how do they learn it? You see that they um, they kind of, you know, do their own thing. They sniff in the corner or whatever. And then by mistake, they kind of, you know, their body presses the lever and food falls into the food port. And they're like, hmm, food. And sometimes you could, you know, this is anthropomorphizing and reading things into their behavior. But if you look at them, sometimes it looks like they were thinking, what just happened? Yeah. Let me try to do that again? <laughs> is that going to create? So, But do that again is not necessarily press the lever. So, oh, I just sniffed that corner. Let's go sniff that corner. Go back to the food. Oh, no, no food yet. Yeah. Continue rambling about, ooh, the lever gets pressed again. And so you can see them testing hypotheses too, yeah. just like we do. That's awesome. Um, like the curiosity in their eyes, you can like see it, yeah. So the last thing I kind of would like to ask, when you are uh, not doing science, do you have any other like passions or hobbies that you like to spend time doing? <laughs> it's funny, I have so many, but I don't have time to do almost any of them. It always seems like there's only one that I can have at a specific moment in time. When a new one comes in, it replaces the old one. So I used to do shiatsu. Oh, shiatsu is is acupressure. It's it's like acupuncture, but it's with um, it's like a massage that you uh, uh, that you apply to someone. Uh, it's not like a, a massage with oils and stuff. So they're fully clothed, and it's uh, therapeutic. So you yeah. can cure diseases with shiatsu. So I studied that oh, wow. for several years and used to do that. I don't have time to do that anymore. Um, I used to play the guitar. I don't play the guitar anymore. Um, now I have kids. They're kind of oh, you yeah, know yeah. they take up. <laughs> They take up the spare time. I love hiking. Uh, I used to guide hikes, right? But I don't do that anymore. But now I hike myself a little bit. And I read books. And it's interesting to say that as a hobby. Because when I, you know, when I was a kid, I read a lot. I was a bookworm. And then, that's what it's called, right? A bookworm? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. English is my second language. <laughs> and then I kind of stopped because there's so much scientific stuff to read that you can't really excuse read. Like there's always more stuff As that I need to I read. Know. <laughs> I know. And it piles and piles, literally piles yeah. on my desk. So I would say, you know, I can't read a novel when I need to read all this. And for about like 15 years, I think, I, I barely read any novels. And then on maternity leave, nice. a bunch of moms, we started a reading group. And so now I read a book, a novel a month with this reading group. Oh, and great. I realized again that novels are wonderful. And how did I let that get out of my life? Yeah. And especially they're more interesting than science articles. So whereas that pile on my desk did not get any shorter by not reading novels because I'd read, you know, two paragraphs and fall asleep. Yeah. I can read 
novels and not fall asleep. So so I'm back to reading and I really love it. Wonderful. Well, Yael, thank you so much for talking to me today. I had a great time. You're welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening. This episode of Brain Matters was sponsored by Audible.com. Audible is a leading provider of audiobooks with over 180,000 downloadable titles from almost every genre imaginable. For Brain Matters listeners, Audible is providing a free audiobook of your choice to try out their service. I'm going to recommend a book I finished recently and absolutely loved. Uh, That book is by John Darniel the lead singer of The Mountain Goats, and it's called Wolf and White Van. This book is about a man named Sean Phillips, and Sean has designed an elaborate role-playing game called Trace Italian. You soon learn that the imaginary world that Sean has built serves as an escape from some of the choices he has made, and some of them continue to haunt him to this day. I thought it it was beautifully written, and you should definitely let John read it to you. To pick this book up, or another one of your choice, head on over to audiblepodcast.com slash brainmatters. That's audiblepodcast.com slash brainmatters. The transition music you heard today was from the artist Death's Dynamic Shroud, and the music you're hearing right now is by 2814. Both of these artists are featured on the Dream Catalog label, which you can pick up for free at dreamcatalog.bandcamp.com. Thanks again for listening. We'll see you next time.